That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, available on Amazon and everywhere. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. I'm your host, Lou Perez. I'm very happy to be joined by my next guest. My next guest? Who wasn't a guest before this? This is the, it, What are we doing here? Um, his name is uh, James Maznov. He's the author of Rights Reign Supreme. And you could actually check out that book over at that URL, rightsreignsupreme.com. And he has a, a substack called History Killers. James, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Where, where, where are you uh, broadcasting from? Where, where I'm in Oregon. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I'm about 15 minutes outside of Salem, a little over an hour outside of Portland. What's so. is there a different vibe between like Salem and Portland? Because we hear about Portland all the time. What's the oh, yeah. Uh, yeah? What's the if, if there was like a there's a Portlandia? What's the Sol Salamia? I guess if there was a show. <laughs> um, it's just a lot more chill, you know, uh, a lot more diversity of views, uh, a lot more acceptance of different views, uh, and uh, you know, I went to grad school in Portland. I, I'm, I'm pretty pretty well familiar with it i used to play there as a musician as well and uh i i'll be honest i was never particularly a fan uh but i i liked their uh grad school at portland state um and it just got progressively worse over the years it's just i mean dumpster fire on top of a dumpster fire really yeah i don't know where people get the energy to like nightly do, do like nightly burn like burnings of like police stations and stuff. Like, I mean, I have, I have, I have two kids. I have a career. Um, right. And like the idea of just trying to find, I, I can hardly find the time to take a nap, let alone, uh, you know, expend the energy of, you know, taking it to the, <laughs> taking it to the streets. Um, so I, I, you know, whatever, whatever Portland's got going on, you know, maybe there's like something in the water or in the air that, you know, just gives people that extra, you know, that extra kick. Well, it, it was funny. I was in grad school uh, during the 2020 riots, and I had just I had just finished my coursework, and so I was able to work on my master's thesis, which, which ended up being sort of the source material uh, for my new book. Um, and it was even even before everything blew up with the the events of you know because of George Floyd in uh, summer 2020, it was already. I just. I, I'm politically independent. I, I don't consider myself right or left. I, you know, a billion years ago would have considered myself on the left. Uh, as many conservatives have, as I've grown to be, become friends with, I feel like they're, they're waiting for the moment that I say I'm a conservative. It's just not going to happen. Um, but, you know, I find common cause with people all along the political spectrum. And the thing that I noticed with Portland um, and with the university, I was, I was going to grad school, uh, my grad school program, I would hear these like open borders arguments from people and especially faculty, like all day long, but you need a card to access campus. Like you, you have a digital card that unlocks the doors <laughs> to get into because uh, Portland State University is a very urban campus is right in the middle of downtown. And so I just thought it was very funny, all these open border arguments, but everybody's locking their doors, you know, so because obviously there's a huge homelessness problem in Portland. And so if you have unlocked doors, a lot of uh, people are going to come in who don't belong there. And it was, that's just obvious. But, 
you know, that sort of incoherence of, of the logic a lot of the people are surrounded by some very smart people. It was, it just kind of floored me. Yeah. I, I find that um, uh, like, for example, in Los Angeles, there's a, a section of, uh, called Boyle Heights and they are very much against gentrification, like to the yeah. point where you had people try to open like coffee shops and art galleries, you know, real positive stuff. And they were picketed. You know, um, and I don't know how many, um, you know, how many stores had to like, you know, close their uh, close down and just get the hell out of there because the, you know, the people didn't want them there. But then when it comes to issues of immigration, they're very much uh, pro immigration, um, you know, pro, pro I think, uh, probably, uh, 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 you know, just like free flowing, uh, you know, open borders, I guess, if, you know, if you would call it that. Yeah. And it's just sort of that. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't compute. It's like, if do you believe in the free flow of uh, of human beings, free, mi you know, migration of human beings, or are you uh, about borders? You know, uh, whether they are, you know, physical borders or you know, um, cultural borders. I guess, uh, I guess, in a way, right? Um, well, yeah. and and for me, it's just you know, like if you want to have the conversation, let's have the conversation. Like. Uh, you know, for me, I, I, I think borders are necessary. You know, I, uh, you know, we have doors, we have walls, you know, for our house, you know, kind of common sense stuff. But if, if people think we need to do more legal immigration, you know, I remind people, we have more than 1 million legal immigrants into the U.S. every year. We have the most liberal immigration policy in the world. If people don't think that's liberal or generous enough let's talk about it you know should it be 10 percent of the population should it be something more like 3.3 million uh every year i'm willing to have that conversation but can we separate the difference between legal and illegal immigration and that's the argument they don't want to have and you know that's the, the conversation they don't want to have they want to conflate different things and so i, I feel like that's why the, the issue never really gets settled yeah. I, I watched a, a, a really good video. There's a, a guy, uh, I believe his first name is Andrew. He does um, walk, don't run on, um, on oh, yeah. YouTube. And yeah. he had a, he had a, a, a good video just a, about that, about, you know, something that, that you never hear about are, you know, how many people become citizens uh, each year and the breakdown from where they come from. So you have people becoming citizens who are, from Mexico, from the Dominican Dominican Republic, from from Bangladesh, and all these breakdowns, and you know the idea that you know the United States has a problem with brown people. It's like yeah. well, there's a lot of brown people not only coming here illegally as you as you describe, but also becoming American citizens. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I enjoy when I enjoy when the, when conversations have like you know actual nuance as opposed to just looking for the. Uh, the quickest way to get out of the conversation by, you know, calling you a, a racist or, or, you know, or, or any other, uh, you know, or, or any other thing. I got to um, say, if I can tell you, yeah. uh, you know, I, I loved we, the internet. I absolutely. Oh, uh, wearing the hat. Yeah. I, I, I just loved it. And, uh, I, you know, I, every video I ever saw, I, I loved, but your, you know, don't make me defend Trump video really spoke to me as a sort of disaffected liberal that was just could not believe the uh <laughs> the insanity i just couldn't believe the insanity of, of people who i knew who uh were blaming trump and there i was a non-trump supporter 
finding myself in exactly that situation of like, you know, what's going on here? And that just level of insanity, the way that you provided humor to that uh, was really a gift. Oh, thanks, man. No, I really appreciate that. That that That's one of those videos that I was uh, pretty surprised by just how, uh, uh, how, uh, how I, I, it spoke for, I guess, like, so many people there was a i don't know if it's a, a silent minority a silent majority whatever you want to call it but just the amount of people who reached out they're like yeah i'm a liberal or i'm a libertarian or i'm a democrat and yeah, yeah i've been in those in those situations where i hear something you know someone saying something about trump that's not true or it's an exaggeration and you want to come in and correct them um and of course you know during those four years if you said anything that could have possibly been a uh, c- could be viewed as something positive about Trump, even if it's just like, oh no, he 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 actually said this. Uh, you know, then you're automatically like a, a Trump supporter, uh, right? Well, I I think that video came to mind uh, when you said nuance, like yeah. you you couldn't have nuance, and that still happens to me. I I still come across people, and I mean, I I don't was it? I think it's been uh, supposedly it was Churchill who said it. I don't know if that's correct, but. Uh, that a fanatic is somebody who can't change their mind and can't change the subject, which is <laughs> a, a line I really like a lot. And I, I think this qualifies for that because I'm still coming across, across people who can't stop talking about Trump. They can't stop complaining. And it's just like, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, obviously, I mean, he's, you know, there, it's, it's still an ongoing, you know, there's so many ongoing things. Like for one, I, you know, I, you wake up in the morning and you're like the guy's being investigated. Right. Um, I don't know how many uh, different investigations or actual lawsuits are, are, are taking place and he's running for, you know, for president. So, you know, I don't know, you know, as a, you know, as a historian, has there, has there been another time where anything has been close to this? Like, you know, in a sense, yes. I'm, I'm glad you asked. So, and again, nuance, right? Nothing I'm about to say is a defense of Trump or anything he may have done. But the historical context is one of the things that he's been charged with is the Espionage Act. The Espionage Act came about during World War I uh, under President Woodrow Wilson, the first democratic progressive president. Not the first progressive president. I remind my conservative friends that the, pro- the first progressive uh, president was Teddy Roosevelt, but uh, not long after him was Woodrow Wilson. Wilson uh, and his colleagues uh, got the Espionage Act passed in order to crush dissident against anti-war protesters who were against American involvement in World War One. Uh, but the Espionage Act was also used by Woodrow Wilson to go after his political enemies. He actually had the socialist Eugene Debs thrown into prison. Yeah. Uh, uh, similarly by, you know, this supposed violation of the Espionage Act for being a political dissident. So uh, here we are over 100 years later, and the Espionage Act is again being used to sort of railroad somebody seemingly for political reasons. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't other legitimate legal reasons to go after Trump. I'm kind of neutral on that issue. But clearly, the Espionage Act is being used in a very similar way to how it was at a hundred years ago. Yeah. A lot of people don't, don't realize, but like Debs did years in prison. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and was eventually uh, pardoned, or at least his he was commuted by President Harding. Uh, it took a wow. Republican to get into office for his uh, for him to get out, or at least to be pardoned. Yeah, and with the uh, the Espionage Act, uh, you know, we could thank the Espionage Act and Woodrow Wilson for the great uh, argument of, uh, you know, you you are not allowed to, you know, you can't uh, falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. The Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, uh, statement that. A lot of people don't know what the uh, what case it was for. So a lot of people are like, oh, it must have been a case where someone was falsely shouting fire in a crowded right. theater. And it wasn't that at all. It was Shank v. United States. Shank right. or Skank, uh, which were, you know, these, uh, I believe, you know, Germans who were passing out a pamphlet, I think, in either German or Yiddish, uh, basically saying, uh, you know, uh, don't... Uh, you know, don't allow yourself to be drafted into this monstrous war. And uh, that was uh, them passing out these anti-war activists passing out pamphlets uh, were likened to uh, a match that is about to set like a powder keg. Um, yeah. So you, you teed me up perfectly because that's in my, my book, right? Oh, Supreme. Uh, it goes through a, a sort of long arc history of the Supreme court, but we definitely, uh, we, I definitely talk about the uh, uh, Shank v. U.S. Uh, case with the Espionage Act and dissidents, you know, during World War One. And yeah, you're absolutely right. What's What's amazing about that, and this is something that um, I, I'm an, an adjunct professor of history, and I do guest lectures as well. And I, anytime I have the opportunity to tell college students the sort of reality of what you just said, that you know, this uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater, how it's a it's such a disingenuous framing. Right. Um, it, it was never, it, it's never been a legal framework, right? It was just a sort of off the cuff, uh, kind of ridiculous framing by Oliver Wendell Holmes. And yeah, exactly. Uh, what he was calling shouting fire in a crowded theater was actually protected speech that was anti-war. And another thing about those pamphlets that they were passing out, they had really strong constitutional arguments for uh, they weren't just against the war. They were against the draft. And for those who don't know, World War I was the first national draft. Technically, the first national draft was during the Civil War. But, you know, half the country was at war with the other half, uh, essentially. The first coast to coast national draft was during World War I. And part of the arguments by the anti-war movement at that time was a, against this draft. And in that same pamphlet that they were passing out that you that you mentioned um they also quote the 13th amendment they, they mm. say clearly you know the 13th amendment uh makes it illegal to compel people into service and so this is a violation of our own system um which i think is a very compelling argument yeah and, and we're we're recording this uh the day after juneteenth um too so you know to to uh you know draw those parallels uh, right, right right there um with um, uh, with your with your book and uh, you know what what made you get into get into history and writing about history because um, I remember when I was um, when I was in college uh, and I was like a literature you know a creative writing literature major and I would look at you know short stories that were written and like analysis of them and it's like what more could be said about 
Ernest Hemingway. There's like thousands of academic papers and stuff. And how, what what is it with with history that like you you looked at it and you're like, no, there's more to this historical record that I that I want to uh, you know bring to light. Yeah, well, so with my new book, um, I do think I offer a new take. It's it's an intellectual history of judicial review and the Supreme Court. Judicial review being the power of the court to nullify legislation it deems unconstitutional. Mm. Legislation or executive orders, this power of the court to say this law is unconstitutional and therefore is null and void. First of all, that is an awesome power. And it's a unique right. power. Not every not every modern democracy uses it. Um, no no modern republic or democracy uses it at the level that we do. And we were the first to ever use it. So it's it's a uniquely American concept, and it, it's it's built out of our separation of powers uh, scheme. You know that the court keeps the other branches in check, un- among other things. Um, but even though um, it's a legal history, a constitutional history. I call it an intellectual history because it's really much more about that. And intellectual history is the history of ideas. So it's really about what are the political philosophies? What are the sort of, who who are the thinkers that informed this role of the court to, to uh, assert rights over the powers of government, among other things? And so I, I go back to John Locke. I, uh, I go to Montesquieu. Uh, you know, to these sort of intellectual giants of, of the 17th century and then the founders as well. And, you know, in some circles, it's really unpopular and unliked to assert the founders, but uh, I have no problem doing that. I, I think that they were brilliant. And I mean, uh, enormous flaws, of course, but, uh, and then there's also this controversy in his, historical and legal theory circles that some people argue the court were, was never supposed to have this power. You don't find this power in Article 3 of the Constitution. And I, I lay out the primary source evidence going all the way back to the Constitutional Convention and actually even before that, that actually a lot of people were supporting and practicing this power even before there was a U.S. Constitution. So, um, but really... Um, it's a matter of the recognition and the protection of rights, the relationship between the courts and the Bill of Rights and how uh, the courts are to be a steward of those rights, which I, I know I know how controversial that is for some people, especially with the Dobbs decision uh, last year. And in fact, I held up the publication of my book when the Dobbs leak happened because um, I wanted to include it in the book to make sure it was relevant. And so we, we held up publication so I could uh, do some additions uh, regarding that once the official decision came out. Uh, but really, I, I think the, the, the take that, that I'm taking that was very new, uh, because there's all sorts of histories of the Supreme Court, is looking at why do we have this power and what does it mean for the country and how it's actually been strengthened over time, especially after the, the Civil War and with the ratification of the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment supercharged the Bill of Rights and the court to recognize the Bill of Rights, not just against the federal government, but also against the state governments. And that's why the court has become more central to people's lives, uh, basically from the beginning of the 20th century up to now. And I think people don't understand that. Um, they don't understand how that history has worked, that things like the 14th Amendment has changed the role of the court because it's changed the role of the Bill of Rights and things like that. That, that, that was a lot to, to give yeah, you. Yeah. Well, um, well, I, um, 
the uh does it really go it seems like like most things now just come down to like what was it the commerce clause where oh, it's like yeah. where it's like fuck your state right state's rights um, right it, it you know um um there's there's a case i i forget what it's what it's called i don't know if it was uh it's not london i think london is the uh the uh has to do with uh, uh, working or something like that. But uh, wasn't there a, a, somebody who was arrested for growing wheat on his own farm at, at one point? Or- yes. Yeah. There, there's a lot of things that happened in the 1930s during the uh, FDR. And yeah, exactly. I, I go a little bit into the, the commerce clause in the book and how ridiculous it got. I had to sort of restrain myself because you could easily write an entire book or two about just the abuse of the commerce clause beginning uh, during the the great depression. Uh, but yeah, I, I forget the name of the case as well, but yeah, so somebody was, uh, and that was upheld that somebody mm-hmm. was uh, impacting uh, commerce supposedly, even though he wasn't even selling his surplus to market, it was just for himself and his family. And yeah, it's those kinds of things are very ridiculous. Yeah. So um, uh, in your book, what, do you uh what's like the first time that like you know judicial review uh you know happens like when 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 can you pinpoint that yeah so most people think that it's in 1803 with marbury v madison that's uh in like any sort of 101 class for uh, u.s history or political science or something marbury versus madison is is almost always the one that is asserted now that case sort of made judicial review clear uh, John Marshall said it's it's the role of the court or the duty of the court to say what the law is. And and, and could you, uh, yeah, could you like kind of sum up what the uh, what the case was? Because right now I'm like going, yeah. back to, I'm, I'm going back to like senior year of high school, AP, right, right, AP, uh, history, yeah. right. Well, and and in so many cases, uh, the details of the case are less relevant than the decision, but uh, it had to do with uh, it, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, Jefferson becomes elected uh, and Adams on his way out uh, sort of packs the uh, the administrative offices of uh, the executive uh, government with a lot of loyal federalists uh, against Jefferson's Republicans uh, to make sure there's a sort of st- stronghold of federalists that remain even as John Adams is is uh, leaving uh, office. And somebody is supposed to get, uh, I think he was, uh, uh, Marbury, he was given a, um, a some very low level uh, position, but still, uh, you know, a federal level uh, position. And Jefferson told James Madison, who was his secretary of state, and it was his duty to do this at the time. Um, it was the secretary of state's uh, role to actually literally hand out the commissions for these new jobs to the appropriate individuals who were given those jobs by the previous administration. And Jefferson told Madison, just don't give them the commissions. We'll just ignore that part of the process. They'll never receive their commissions and they never get the job. Right. So we'll sort of break the administrative chain. um, And that's that. And so Marbury said, I was already offered this position. You can't take it away from me because for political reasons, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so it eventually goes to the Supreme Court. In the meantime, there has been this uh, Judiciary Act passed that sort of protects Jefferson for having done that. And the Supreme Court says, you can't do that. We don't care what the, the, the law says you can do that. It's clearly a violation of your constitutional duty. 
And so that's judicial review, right? The court said, we don't care about this law that says you can do this thing. It's unconstitutional. So that, that's sort of the basics of what happened. And people point to that as the first instance of judicial review. Really, that just made it really, really clear. Mm-hmm. But uh, my my book actually spends a good amount of time on earlier decisions. At the federal level in the 1790s, there was this tax on carriages. Uh, you know, it's the, these are the horse and buggy days. And uh, there was a federal pa- tax imposed on carriages and somebody challenged it. And it went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, no, this is fine. This, you know, this is a legitimate tax. It's perfectly fine. Well, that's also judicial review. They just happen to agree with the law being constitutional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's it's less remembered because it, it wasn't judicial review that struck down a law. Right. And, and there's all sorts of things like that through the 17 years and years before the Marbury case. I would say more importantly, you have instances of judicial review at the state level, actually during the revolution. Uh, Massachusetts gets rid of slavery. It's the only state to do this. It gets rid of slavery through judicial review. Um, Yeah, in the the early 1780s, when the revolution is still happening. Now, most of the major battles are over by the early 1780s, but there's no Treaty of Paris until 1783. Well, in that same year that the, the official end of the revolution happens and the United States is recognized by the world as an independent nation, um, Massachusetts, uh, through a series of court cases where enslaved persons challenge the constitutionality of their enslavement, they point to the, the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution written by John Adams, which has a dec- declaration of rights. And they say this declaration of rights clearly makes slavery unconstitutional in the state of Massachusetts. And the highest court ends up agreeing with them. And that's how Massachusetts gets rid of slavery. For those who don't know, slavery existed in every state up to and through the revolution. And then the the northern states start phasing it out uh, sort of in this long, slow, decades-long, generationally long process in most cases. Uh, Massachusetts is one of the few to get rid of it uh, in a sort of immediate way. And they're the only state to do it through judicial, uh, judicial review. Wow, I had no idea. I'm, I'm, now I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what is, yeah, I mean, what do those early decades look like when, you know, here's the one state that, you know, uh, slavery is is uh, illegal, would it be? Or, is uh, you know, can you bring yeah. your, can, like, if you're from out of town, can you bring your slave to Massachusetts and then bring them back? Or Right. Well, and, and that that's a story that goes on for a long period of time. You know, I'm here in Oregon. Most people on the on the West Coast, in the Western states, but especially the West Coast, feel as though, you know, the history of the West Coast is sort of removed from the legacy of slavery. But um, there's this book called Breaking Chains by Gregory Noakes. I was able to interview him a couple of years ago. And uh, it's all about how some people, particularly from Missouri, uh, in the mid-1800s when slavery was still going on actually brought their slaves with them on the Oregon trail. And there were slaves brought to Oregon in the mm-hmm. 1840s, 1850s. And uh, uh, there's, there's one slave case that actually happens in Oregon territory um, uh, sometime in the 1850s, I believe. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy history for sure. Yeah. And um, you know, like I said uh, earlier, we're um, you know, recording the day after Juneteenth, Something something wild that I that I found was, you know, after uh, you know slavery was eradicated, 
in the United States. Uh, Native Americans still practice slavery for uh, quite a few years. That it actually took like the United States to help liberate slaves from um, some uh, uh, Native, uh, you know, slave masters. That's right. Yeah. So, like the Chickasaw is one example where for at least a, at least another year they held on to their slaves because for all of the the sort of broken treaties and and all of that stuff uh native american nations were viewed as sovereign nations legally speaking and so the 13th amendment had no impact on uh native americans who owned slaves and so only through the process of creating new treaties with them and basically forcing them to get rid of their slaves as a condition of these new treaties, uh, did some of these Native American nations get rid of their slaves? Yeah, you know, like I said, like you know, I I, I discovered that I discovered it. I'm the one who found it. Out. <laughs> uh, you know, I heard about that. You know, a couple uh, a couple of years ago, um, and it's one of it's one of those things that you know you hear about. And you're like, what? How can this? You know, how could this be? I, I've never heard this before. I think uh, where I first came across it was um, uh, there was uh, uh, what's it? Lewis Gates had a, a show on PBS talking about like the ancestry of like celebrities, and uh, one of his guests were was the actor Don Cheadle, great great actor. Yeah, and Don Cheadle is a descendant of slaves, but what he discovered is that he wasn't the descendant of white slave masters. He was the descendant of, I believe it was the Chickasaw yeah. uh, slave masters. And that, you know, completely like threw, you know, almost made his head explode like on, on camera because, you know, the, you know, what we learn and, you know, what is, you know, the norm is, you know, white slaveholders uh, in, right. the, in the United States. So when you are, when you're writing, you know, your books, when you're going, you're doing research, like, uh, what what are like some of the things that you discovered that you're like, holy shit! Like I had no idea because because that must be a big part of it, right? It's like sort of the oh yeah, investigating, you know, doing detective work and just finding stuff that you know maybe you know maybe it's going to change the direction of your book, you know, possibly. Yeah. And and yeah, what, what were some examples of that? Uh, well, the one from my book um, that got me was there's this uh, Congressman John Bingham and he he's responsible for the first section of the 14th amendment. The one that uh, ends up enforcing the bill of rights against the States during reconstruction. And it turns out in my research, he also opposed Oregon statehood um, years before the 14th amendment. I thought, Oh, well that's interesting. What's that about? And it's because um, when Oregon was trying to become a state, it's original constitution um, some people know this, a lot of people don't. Uh, the original Oregon Constitution did not allow African Americans to reside in the state. Wow. So Oregon was a simultaneously anti-slavery, but also anti-black constitution. And that was why John Bingham opposed it, was because he was already, he already had, he was way, he was years ahead where he thought the Bill of Rights should apply to the state governments as well as the federal government which he argued we can get rid of slavery in this sort of way, right? We can have the same expectations and limitations on the states that we have on the federal government. Um, and so he saw in sort of a bill of rights sort of vision of looking at Oregon statehood. It's like, well, they're not recognizing the equal rights of even free African-Americans, forget those who are enslaved. Um, and so that's why he opposed Oregon statehood. 
And uh, that actually, that clause in the Oregon Constitution remained for many years. And in, in the early years of, of Oregon, there are these lash laws where they actually uh, would exact corporal punishment on African-Americans if they didn't leave the state. It's, it's crazy stuff, especially when you think about how, you know, supposedly progressive uh, Oregon is now. Nowadays, it's a part of history a lot of people don't, you know, know about or, or want to think about. I mean, um, I'm, yeah, I'm just thinking about the Portland Trailblazers. Like, man, <laughs> like, what the fuck? What the fuck would Oregon right, do if, if right. all you could have were just white players? Yeah, all exactly. like what would Vladi Divac? I think was that one of the uh, you know, just just, <laughs> uh, just just twelve of those guys, right? Um, um, yeah, that, now, that's so interesting. Okay, sorry. Uh, well, just uh, something else. It's not in my book, but I it, it's something I bring up to my students a lot because I think it's one of those things that you're talking about. That the sort of I. I'm fascinated by the complexities of history. That's what is made. That's what makes it interesting. I think you and I are similar in that way. Is that that's the nuance, right? Like right. we're interested in the nuance. Like things are always more complicated than they're often framed. Um, but you take somebody like Thomas Jefferson. We know about Sa Sally Hemings, right? His uh, uh, one of his slaves, uh, a young woman, and. Different historians agree or disagree about um, them having a relationship. We do know that DNA bears out that her children had Jefferson DNA. What we don't know if it's him. Uh, so that's the thing. Like, it was a male Jefferson. It might not have been him. So it's circumstantial evidence that leads to him. But let's just say it was him, okay? Just for the moment, for the sake of argument. Sally Hemings was the half-sister of Jefferson's dead wife. What? Yeah. Wow. So Sally Hemings was the offspring of Jefferson's father-in-law. He impregnated one of his slaves, Sally's mother. And so Sally Hemings was the half-sister of Martha Jefferson, uh, who died in the 1780s before Jefferson ever became president or anything. So uh, this complicates the issue, right? It's not just Jefferson. And, and again, we don't even know if it bears out that um, it was he who impregnated Sally Hemings. And right. um, and she had a number of, of Jeffersonian children, if we can call it that. Um, but let's just say it was him. Um, that is that is some nuance right there. Uh, you know, did he... Did she share? Did she share certain features, uh, physically or personality-wise, of you know his deceased wife? You know, were they at all similar? We do know that Sally Hemings was was three quarters white, which is not often how she's represented in um, you know dramatizations mm -hmm. and things like that. So anyway, th that's just another sort of complexity that you know, if it is true that it was Jefferson who had this ongoing sexual relationship with Sally Hemings uh, for many years, it makes it much more complex if uh, she was the half sister of his deceased wife. Yeah, for sure. And also like the, um, you know, the relationship too. like, uh, you know, she's owned. Right. But right. it's like, what, you know, what is like her day to day, tasks like you know does she doing like menial work is she you know working in the house like it, it, it it's i think you know one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is sort of uh the problem of looking back into history through the lens of you know contemporary times and you know how we do things because i 
it's very tough to even imagine slavery, uh, let alone all the complexities that come with, you know, having children, you know, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dad. Yeah. Um, I have my two, my two sons and the, the idea of like, if I had a, you know, a slave and impregnated her and she gave birth and those are my sons, but yet I wouldn't, I would treat them, you know, like they were lower than my boys, you know, it's uh, yeah. It's like, like, what is even that, you know, yeah, like those relationships, those comp- you know, incredibly complex things. It, it is really complex, and you made me think of this. Is also uh, not to overly plug my book, but this is also uh, in it. Uh, there, there's the the figure of Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley is one of the first uh, known American poets. She was an enslaved woman, and she was uh, originally owned by a Massachusetts, New, you know, New England family uh, in the 1700s. And she ends up becoming so well known. She actually uh, travels uh, England uh, because she becomes this recognized poet, and so she's eventually freed because that's kind of embarrassing, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but her name is Phyllis because she was named by uh, this Massachusetts family that bought her as a child. She was named after the slave ship she came in on, called the Phyllis. And it was the Wheatley family that bought her. And we don't think of Massachusetts and like New England in this way. But what's very interesting is that they decided to, just like they did with all of their children, to educate her, which was why she was able to read and write. And so even though she was an enslaved child, they ended up educating her and treating her as sort of some, you know, some type of uh, family member. To, to the point where she becomes this very uh, celebrated poet. But that's that's really complex when you think about like New England Christians and slavery and this, you know, poet who's named after the slave ship that she came in on. It's it's complex stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, wonder what, wonder what the hell the equivalent would be. Like there are people in my um, in my town, there's like there's lakes and they have boats. So you have like goofy names, you know, like oh. on the boat. <laughs> so right. I'm like just I'm just imagining like, yeah, you name your slave after like, you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm trying to even think like uh you know yeah, I'm trying to think like what are some goofy boat names like uh you know beer goggles or something like that. You know, right. it's like yeah, this is uh you know, incredibly <laughs> gifted poet named Beer Goggles Wheatley. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, oh man, no, uh, yeah that that's uh, that's wild. When you're when you're writing your book, how did you know you were done with it? Because I know I, you said mm. you, you you held it, uh, you, you held your latest one for the Dobbs uh, decision, right? And which we never found out who the leaker was, right? Right. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's unreal that we don't know who the leaker Agreed. is. You know, yes. that's that's I'm I'm no conspiracy theorist, but. I have a feeling somebody knows who the, who the leaker was. Somebody has to know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you, so you know, uh, barring you know, barring that, like you know, how do you know when when your you know when your book is done? You know, writing it? Well, I mean, you've written a book, like yeah. you know, it, it, it's it's large. You know, I'm sure it's the same. Uh, what's the expression? You know, works of art are never finished; they're just abandoned. It, I mean, <laughs> e- even works of history are, are to some degree that it's just like, I guess I'm done. 
right? Like, because yeah. I guess with uh, writing history, it's a little bit like, well, I think I'm done with the research. You know, like mm. there, there's enough here. Um, and so I can kind of just leave it be. Uh, there's also a lot of revisions in the process. This was the, this was a master's thesis, and then I adapted it into a manuscript. Um, and then I did even further revisions at that point. Once I got a book deal, uh, I got no notes from McFarland Publishing. They they liked it as is, which was pretty amazing, even after their peer reviewers and all that. Um, but I kept kind of tinkering with it until I submitted the, the final manuscript. And I thought I was done until that Dobbs leak happened. But uh, whether it was this or my, my first book was a collection of essays, uh, some of which originally appeared at places like New Discourses, um, James Lindsay's site and stuff like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious uh, if it was similar for you. Like you, at some point, you, it's just like you feel like you're done, right? It, it's, it's hard to put words to it. Yeah, I uh, so, you know, before I, you know, took on the book, I was just thinking like, there's no way I have enough for a book. Like, there's no way that I'm able, like, like how many thousand, like what, like 50,000 words plus, like, there's no, there's absolutely no way. And then as I started like looking at stuff I had written before and like published in other, you know, like, uh, you know, online magazines and stuff and started putting things together and saying, Oh, I want to write about this subject and this subject. And, Oh, this story works for this, for this. After a while I was like, okay, now I have too much. Like, mm -hmm. and there were, there were some chapters that I wanted to write, but I was like, dude, I'm, I'm so fucking burnt out. Like there's no, yeah. like, there's no way I want to, I want to do this. Um, and for, for me, so, so like in my book, there's kind of like, um, there's, you know, somewhat of a, of an arc, you know, uh, of, you know, kind of what I'm going through as I'm writing this and looking back on comedy and, um, and all that. And uh, the end kind of, the, the end kind of made itself known uh, after I had like, you know, gone through it and it was like, Oh wow. This whole time I'm sort of like building up to this thing that I didn't know was in me until it was out, you know, on the uh, computer screen really. Um, and then uh, I had a really good experience with, uh, with my publisher and the proofreaders and all that. And the one tricky thing was uh, writing the first chapter. Um, because, uh, as my, as my publisher said, he's like, you know, you know who you are, we know who you are, but somebody reading this, they don't know who you are. So right. you need to be able to present, you know, the subject matter right off the bat and, and explain to them why you're writing this and why it's important. And then also, you know, draw them in. So it was like, out of all of the, you know, out of all the pieces, it was the first chapter was the one that took the most like rewrites and, you know, uh, and, you know, sort of trickery, like I, I was uh, in the first chapter, there are a number of bits that were originally separate chapters, like later on in the book that I had to bring. So uh, if anybody out there is writing a book, what I recommend is get some index cards and write chat, write the names of the chapters on those index cards and yeah. get an empty floor and, you know, sort of, you know, plot them on the, uh, on the ground and then start looking at them kind of as like a conspiracy theorist to see where the, yeah. the links are and start moving stuff around. And then you'll, you, it'll start to make sense. You know, it's so funny is that uh, I'm in the process of writing like this kind of six article um, series uh, for my, for my Substack, 
and it's all about how to write, how to go through the process of writing a book. And I'm going through all my past notes, and it's exactly what you said. For me, it's full pages, but it's the same idea of having just piles of paper and exactly having empty space, just lay it all out. And I think the subtext there, and I, I emphasize this when I write about it, write by hand. Like maybe not when you get to the actual mm. process of writing your book, but when you're doing notes, when you're organizing your ideas, I think writing by hand actually helps a lot. I think it helps you to organize your ideas. I'm, I'm curious, in your case, I, uh, I used to, uh, doing music was a huge part of my life. And then as I uh, pursued a history career, it's much more on the side now. I don't tend to think of those things as having a whole lot of or- overlap, except for when th- things like what you just brought up, the sort of discovering when you're done. Mm. Um, I'm curious if comedy is the same way. So wh- uh, when you've been writing stuff uh, for stand-up uh, or any any sort of comedy project you're doing, is it a similar thing? Because I have found that with songwriting, it's similar to an article or a book in that you don't necessarily know where it's going, but it finds itself and it presents itself eventually. I imagine comedy might be similar. Is that true? Um, I, I think so. And, and, you know, what you brought up about like writing by hand, um, it's something where when I take notes, I definitely, you know, I definitely do that. Um, uh, I think it's uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, that's how he writes his books. Like he writes them out and then, oh, wow. And then he'll have somebody like, you know, type them. Um, for me, um, I get sort of like OCD. Uh, so I would just, if that was the case for me, I mean, I would just, I don't think there would be enough paper in the world really for me to keep <laughs> going back and erasing stuff and, uh, and all that. I think with, uh, with, uh, with comedy, you know, it's sort of depending on which medium uh, you're presenting the stuff. So like sketch comedy versus stand up, right? So, uh, with sketch comedy, you're, you know, what are you working with? You're trying to get something in like three to five minutes at the absolute most. So there's sort of like length that you're dealing with. So like those, those time constraints. And then with, uh, you know, with stand up, it's sort of like, uh, how can you, and well, I think with, with everything in general, it's like, how long can this be while still making it interesting? You know, mm-hmm. if it's sort of, Cause there is sort of like, there's one liners that will just work as a one line, you know? Right. But then you might be able to string together five one liners. And now that that works as its own self-contained bit. Right. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you try to add a few more one liners, but those aren't funny. So now you're like, okay, well those gotta go. Um, and I think, I think sometimes too, it's sort of, uh, you're done working on a bit where, where it's like, okay, these are the, these are the lines that I'm saying that work. And right. I don't want to push it. <laughs> I don't want to push it any further. Cause like these work and they stand like on their own. Well, that's another similarity then uh, right. from what you were saying in your process of writing your book. And I found the same thing, being a good editor, right. Being a good mm-hmm. self editor, knowing like, Oh, I would love to write about this and go off on another tangent but maybe it swerves off course too much. It's like that, that just needs to be a separate idea or a separate project. I, I think being a good self-editor has a lot to do with everything we're talking about. Yeah. And, and uh, there's something about, um, you know, uh, so I, I, I went to grad school for uh, creative writing 
And I remember one guy had turned in a, a story during like a workshop and he opened, I think he opened the story with like, um, you would call her a girl with a reputation period. And then he kept going about like, she, you know, slept with all these guys and, you know, she had these big fake breasts, just all this stuff, all this stuff, all this stuff. And our, you know, professor basically like took that and just cut out everything that came after, you know, you would say she had a reputation because it's sort of like, you just said it, you just said it all there. Yeah. Um, very strongly, you know, right to the point. And then you allow the, you know, the reader to sort of envision what, you know, this woman is that, that you're describing. Absolutely. Uh, and it was, a, it was a much stronger piece. So, um, so, so you're a musician. Uh, what, what, what instrument do you play? Uh, guitar, bass, drums, vocals. Oh, wow. Yeah. Vocals. I, I always, anytime I meet sing, like people who can sing, I'm always just so jealous, man. Well, like, I don't know if I can, but yeah. <laughs> When it's rock and roll, it doesn't matter. I got, I, I, <laughs> I guess, I guess so. And um, uh, so, what kind of, uh, what, what kind of rock and roll? Uh, well, the the band is called Masonic Block, uh, MasonicBlock.com. If anybody's interested, uh, but I mean, it runs the the gamut, uh, everything from like acoustic folk to punk rock to metal, experimental noise, ambient soundscapes. Uh, really goes all over the place. We'll be releasing our. Uh, 11th studio album uh, 11th wow this summer yeah um and I, I have less and less time to do that stuff so uh you know now that it's summer i may or may not be teaching a, a summer class i'll find out this week whether i do or not will sort of help to schedule what my summer looks like for working on music uh but i used to tour nationally and and all that kind of stuff before i uh, pursued this history career yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I love everything from the Beatles to the Ramones, you know, Simon and Garfunkel to the Swans and dead Kennedys, you know, so my sort of diverse, uh, fandom is channeled into the kind of music I do. Yeah. And, and, you know, talking about, you know, I guess how, you know, music would, you know, differ from, you know, the regular, you know, writing of books and comedy and all that. I mean, you're dealing with, other personalities, right? I mean, all the guys in your band, I would imagine, you know? Yeah. But, uh, so it's sort of like, you might, you might love something. I, I don't know how it is. Maybe, you know, maybe you run a dictatorship. I don't know. Um, but I imagine a that <laughs> a little, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, uh, I, I, I tend to be the primary songwriter so that that helps. And mm. I, I don't, this is just my personal opinion. I don't think that most bands work well as democracies, mm. uh, it's just, you know, it helps. Uh, I'm not making a, a one-to-one comparison here. I want to be clear, but, you know, it, it helps if there's a Lennon-McCartney component. It helps if there's a Mick and, Je- you know, uh, Keith and Mick, you know, one or two people who sort of uh, set, you know, set the tone right. and have and have the vision. And then you have really talented players who can help kind of fulfill that vision. Yeah. And um, it, it's interesting because it, I'm thinking about uh, I love um, there's a guy named uh, Rick Beato who's um, oh um, I love Rick Beato yeah yeah I I think I think it's impossible not to love Rick Beato you know absolutely and I think he connects people like yourself who are you know professional musicians to guys like me who you know just like to listen yeah uh, 
and uh you know he has like so many uh so many guests on like interviews like he interviewed sting he uh, mm-hmm. he interviewed um there's a, a guitarist from the band toto who he was like michael jackson's guitarist on thriller mm-hmm. and uh you know what i what i find is you know even like the 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 hardest like metal guys absolutely love like stevie wonder who yeah. you know it's sort it's sort of like the guys who actually are making this stuff what they're into is just it, it's uh a, so much broader um you know uh, examples of, of music than like perhaps the the fans or at least i'm thinking of like you know when i was a 12 year old kid and like i was a you know i was into like the band helmet and it's oh, like yeah. Yeah, it's so it's like i was into the band helmet and uh you know if you like this band and you can't like that other kind of music you know <laughs> right but meanwhile like Paige hamilton uh, he's the lead singer guitarist he's like a jazz guitar player too like classically trained in, or um in that uh so yeah i find yeah i find that cool and and also just like as you as you get older too and you start listening to music that's been around for forever but you didn't know it exists so the first time you're hearing it well it's like the first time you're hearing it and you're like what is this what is this world that i'm you know being exposed to right now finally yeah yeah and i think the creative process which turns out is a lot of what we've been talking about anyway uh has a lot to do with I mean, of course, just as a listener, as a fan, I love Stevie Wonder, but he, you know, he was also the first musician to do a full album where he played all the instruments. Stevie Wonder was the first to do that. Uh, just the the level of talent and creativity, I think that's also what a lot of artists and musicians are drawn to. And then you, it, you know, if that's if you're not a fan of the music first, but you're like, wow, he did that, and then you go and discover that level of talent, that also draws you in. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, um, like with, um, is there a, like a, is there a Stevie wonder now? Like, is there, you know, somebody now I, I, I often think of, um, uh, like the traveling Wilburys, right. Mm-hmm. Who, who were, was it, was it Bob Dylan? Oh, um, I love those guys. Yeah. Bob it, Dylan, Jeff George, Lynn, George, George Harrison, Harrison, Tom Petty yeah. and Roy Orbison. And it's like, how the, f- like, those how that band like the idea that you know all those greats got together to do a band like is that is there an equivalent of that today that could that could happen like i don't i don't know and yeah. even even in their own time they were actually a super group that that were good right know? right like i i i love traveling willberries but you you come across some of these super groups and your expectations are raised and then you listen to it it's just like mm. <laughs> yeah right um they end up being less than the sum of their parts oftentimes which is surprising uh but i don't know that first off music is in such a different place right now uh yeah. it, that had nothing to do with the the direction i took to to sort of go on a different path with history but i've you know witnessed it and we're in a time right now where there are still people who love music, but sort of culturally it's treated like wallpaper. It's treated, mm-hmm. it's just that thing that you have playing in the background on your phone. It's not central to people's lives. Like it's been at other, in other eras, you know, I, I was uh, a youngster in the nineties and um, you know, music was everything to me and that, you know, I wasn't alone in that. I think we might come to another period where that's the case. I don't think we're there right now. Um, I feel like the last time we had a Stevie Wonder type, it was probably Prince. Mm. 
you know, who is equally capable of like doing all the instrumentation himself on his albums, though also a really good collaborator. Um, I, I think we'll we'll see those kinds of geniuses again. And I'm not trying to disparage anybody who's sort of in the milieu right now, but nobody comes to mind for me mm-hmm. currently. I have a I have I have a friend of mine some uh some years back. Um, because Prince, I mean, he's been he's been gone for what, like five what, years, maybe more? More. It was yeah. it 20, 2015 or twenty sixteen? It's been a long time. Yeah, crazy how, how quickly that's gone. But um so when when Prince was was around, he was doing these really small club dates in Los Angeles. I think it was like three or four nights. And each night he was doing like a different, you know, sort of uh incarnation of Prince. So there was like the rock prince, the R&B prince. And uh, my buddy was so excited that he's like, I'm getting tickets. We're getting tickets to this night. And so he and uh, a couple of his friends got tickets and they go to Prince. They're like, oh man, we're going to hear, you know, little red Corvette, raspberry beret. We're going to hear, you know, all this stuff. And they apparently bought tickets for Prince's jazz night. And they're like, and they were like, Ah, fuck! Like, let, <laughs> like, like we love Prince, but this isn't "Let's Go Crazy." This isn't, you know, uh, Purple right. Rain. Were uh, they musicians? Because I feel like a musician would love that. Uh, he plays guitar, but uh, I don't think, yeah, I don't think on that point, yeah, on that level, where he would be uh, the inside. Because yeah. I, I mean, jazz also is just its its own thing. You know, it's like definitely. You know, to be able to get that to, you know, total respect to the, the players of jazz, but sometimes they're operating on a very different wavelength than, than a, than a normie uh, like, uh, like me. Do, I'm, you so, ever th- I'm so, so glad good. you mentioned uh, Raspberry Beret. I feel like that gets lost in the mix, and that's my favorite Prince song. Is it, is it your favorite Prince song? I, I love that song. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the I, same three chords over and over and over again. Oh, like wow. if you actually learn to play it, it's just three chords, and it it doesn't even change to go from verse to chorus. It's just the same three chords over and over and over again. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I'm I've become a big uh, a big fan of like lyrics that come out of nowhere, like mm-hmm. to describe even to, to describe something as a raspberry beret. Like I don't I don't know where that comes from, but I like hearing it because it's so different. You know. Yeah, I think that's your literary side. I think I think I think so. Yeah, I've gotten into like watching, I'm uh, listening to, like Paul Simon lyrics are really interesting. Oh yes, uh, um, and you know, just people putting together sentences that I would never, you know, that that normally wouldn't exist, you know, and just like oh, and and he's singing in a beautiful voice too. Like there's right. a lot, there's a lot going on here. No, um, I, I know it's a cliche, but I, I do believe that Bob Dylan is the greatest American songwriter. Not the greatest songwriter. I'm probably partial to John Lennon on, on that front, but uh, the greatest American songwriter. But I have always said that if it's not Bob Dylan, then the greatest American songwriter is Paul Simon. Mm, nice. In my view. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever think about, um, you know, doing like a history of music, like uh, some version of that, like bringing the two together? A little bit, and I've I've done a few articles here and there on my Substack. Uh, my Substack is mostly a mix of social commentary. That's where the history killers comes from. I go after people who seem to be uh, not good at history or are disingenuous in their presentation. I, I'm a big critic of the 1619 Project, for example. Mm-hmm. But I also have sort of like uh, other stuff where. Well, in fact, it just went up. There's a musical component in the the current article that's. Uh, that's at uh, history killers right now. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, uh, I had an article, uh, 
uh, when cowboys were rock stars, and it just oh. tr- it just tracks this sort of cultural history of the cowboy, uh, basically from the 1880s where they actually existed up to the, the sort of cultural peak in the 1960s. And so my newest article is, uh, so that was when cowboys were rock stars. And so the new one is when rock stars were cowboys. And it's all mm. about, it's all about how from the sixties through the eighties, rock stars took on the cowboy aesthetic. Oh you yeah. Know? So like the Eagles, Desperado, all the way through the Bon Jovi stuff and the young 80s. guns. Yeah. Young guns movie yeah. with the Jovi soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like kind of mixing history with that sort of pop cultural component. That can be a lot of fun. Oh, that's dope. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, um, to, to reading those for sure. Um, I, I, I saw this meme, I, 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 a little while back where they said at, at some point in time, it would have been possible for Abraham Lincoln to send a telegram to a samurai in Japan. It's sort of yeah. like these three things happen, like happening at the exact same time. Right. Something like, something like that. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff. I, I just uh, finished teaching 19th century U S history uh, to a college class here locally. And that that's always that kind of blows my students' minds when we get past the Civil War and Reconstruction, and then we're in the Old West in the 1880s, and then you get to the 1890s, and it starts to look like today. It's like right. there's passenger trains, there's subways, there's telephones, there's electricity. It's like suddenly there's skyscrapers and the building of cities, and you know it's like two seconds after the civil war it's in America. That's very recognizable to us today. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I, I want to say too, is the, uh, uh, you know, talking about like the Cowboys, you know, when Cowboys were, were rock stars, like, you know, take, uh, you know, someone like James Joyce when growing mm-hmm. up, James Joyce as a little boy, like he read cowboy stories, you know, right. like, like that was the popular, you know, culture of, and that's what people would think of America, you know, Absolutely. Home, of, home of the Cowboys and, and all that. Well, um, James Maznov, thank you so much uh, for, for joining me today. Um, for those, uh, for those of you interested in, in checking out James's stuff, head over to his Substack, history killers. And he um, he's got two books going. Uh, one of them is uh, rights reign supreme, which could be found. Um, I believe at the same URL and um, the other one, what, what was the one before that? Uh, the first book is also called history killers. Oh, cool. Sweet. Yeah. That that'll make it so much easier when they're, uh, when they're Googling. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 